You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. Hey, this is Sean Daly from Hole, and you're listening to that one time on tour. Hello and welcome to episode number 32 of that one time on tour. As always, I'm your host, Chris Swinney, back with another stellar conversation with someone in or around the music industry. Thank you guys so much for the support. I was talking last week on the show about how my daughter has to have surgery. That is coming up next Tuesday. It is currently Tuesday and I'm recording this intro. So next Tuesday, she'll be having her surgery and uh, it's a little scary. It's a little stressful and... I am going to take a hiatus. I've decided this is going to be my last episode for a while, probably till at least December, maybe even a little bit longer. But I have some really good guests coming up after the little hiatus, but I do need to take a little bit of time uh, for my family. So I hope you guys understand about that. But the cool thing is, is that I've done a few interviews on other podcasts that will be coming out soon. I just did one today for Speak and Destroy, which my my guest last week, Ryan J. Downey's podcast about Metallica. That'll be coming out soon. And I was also on my buddy Marco's podcast podcast, Zealous Musician, talking about how much I love the band Thursday. So I'll make sure to post links to that when they come out. So if you guys just can't get through a couple weeks without me, at least you'll have something that, to, you know, hold you over a bit. So uh, this week on the show, I get to sit down and chat with Mr. Sean Daly, formerly of the band Hole. Yes, Courtney Love's band Hole. And uh, he also was in a band on Fearless Records called Rock Kills Kid. And uh, we had a really good conversation. We talk about a lot of really crazy stuff. He talks about meeting Elton John. Uh, He talks about being on tour with Courtney Love and how she pissed off an entire crowd of Limp Biscuit fans. (laughs) It's a really, really cool conversation, and I hope you guys are going to enjoy it. Before I get into my conversation with Sean, I do want to tell you about Rockabilia.com. They're still a sponsor. They're amazing. Christmas is coming up, so if you want band merch, you got to go to Rockabilia.com. They have everything that you could ever want, and it's officially licensed by the band which I don't know if everybody knows what that means, but basically what it means is the the designs and everything are, you know, approved by the band and the bands actually get money when you buy it. So if you want to help some bands out and get some really cool merchandise, go to rockabilia.com and put in the promo code PCTOTOT and you'll save 15% on your entire order. I also want you to go check out Muncie Music Center. I work there. I teach guitar and all kinds of other cool things. Um, If you're in Muncie, go to 600 South Mulberry Street and if not, go to MuncieMusic.com. They're a great store and they help me out with a lot of stuff with equipment and whatnot. So go support them. They're an amazing place. Make sure that you are following us on all of the social media platforms. It's at T-O-T-O-T podcast. If you would like to become a sponsor of the show, if you're a band or if you have a really cool company or whatever, hit me up, T-O-T-O-T podcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review us in the iTunes store or wherever you listen to your podcast. And also, so leave me some love or some hate on the TOTOT hotline. It's 1-765-372-8818. So that's going to do it for the business. I'm, I really appreciate you guys so much. I got so many nice emails and comments and whatnot about my daughter. So she's doing great. We're just going to go in. We're going to we're gonna knock out the surgery and uh, start the healing process. So I love my little girl. She's amazing. I love my wife. My wife is, uh, is my rock and she's very, very, she's stronger than I am. So, uh, 
yeah, I'm just, uh, like I said, it's very stressful, but thank you guys so much for being so nice and for, uh, for caring. It, it, it means a lot to me. I've, I found a whole new community of people through this podcast and it's really cool. Like I, I'm touched. <laughs> I know that sounds real sappy, but I'm, I'm a dad now. Everything kind of makes me cry. So thank you guys. I love you so much. I'm going to get into my conversation now because I don't want to keep rambling. You guys know the drill. You, I'm sure you've heard everything I've said before, you know, rockabilly, Muncie music center, blah, blah, blah. You've heard everything I've said. So thank you for coming back week in and week out. I really appreciate it. Now, here it is. My conversation with Sean Daly, formerly of hole and rock kills kid. Here we go. And I'm on the line with Mr. Sean Daly. How you doing today, Sean? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No problem, man. It's my pleasure. So uh, what I like to do here at the beginning of the podcast, I started off the same way every time. I, you know, all of us in this you know, crazy thing we call music, we got into it for some reason or another. So take me back as far as you can. What was your first like memory where you were like, I really want to do music. This is something that speaks to me. That's a good question. You know, it was around probably like, I want to say 1994. So I was probably 12 or 13. And we had a family friend who worked at clubs and in a record store. And I started kind of hanging around and I did the whole thing. I got into Nirvana and like I was into like Motley Crue and Skid Row growing up and a lot of punk rock that I was getting exposed to. But I can really pinpoint it to this time my mom took me to see the offspring. And I'm talking like the offspring before MTV. I'm talking like, you know, Epitaph records, that album ignition was out. And my dad, you know, took pre- my, my dad took me to see them right before smash came out and rancid. Yeah. I'd never heard of rancid. They were opening for them. So yeah, the offspring like did a lot for me as well. Yeah. And they're, they're a band that I have, I get into it with people. I'm like the offspring are a great punk rock band. And they're like, Oh my God, what's wrong with you? I'm like, you know what, man, go listen to ignition. And, and tell me that's not a great punk rock record that actually had themes politically that are really relevant today. I mean, I understand they did pretty fly for a white guy and all that stuff, but you know, like I always say, once you get used to making a living like that, you want to keep making a living like that. So you do what you need to do. And I mean, you go, you go through changes as well. Like I had Pete, sure. I had Pete, the drummer from the offspring who he's not the original drummer, but he's been in there for a long time. And we were talking yeah. about how, you know, you go through so many changes, your fans love your band, but there could be two, three, four, five years between albums and think about how much you change between if you're not a musician, the the amount of change you go through. So imagine, you know, like I always bring up Metallica, people freaked out when they heard load and reload, but that was six or seven years from the black album. I mean, you're going to want to do new stuff. Sure. You change a lot and look at a band like offspring, not to digress too much, but I mean, that was the first, I believe it was the same tour you saw because I want to say rancid was the opener or someone like that, that later on I got really into as well. And I remember leaving that show and going, this is really cool. And everyone was there talking about the bad religion show that was coming. This was in Santa Barbara where I'm from and where I now live again. Um, which is a recent thing. And everyone was talking about bad religion. And I remember being really embarrassed because I didn't know what bad religion was. I was like 12 or 13. And I went to the record store the next day. It was plastic passion in Santa Barbara. I know you've had Marco from sugar called in the show. And he was like a guy that I met in that scene. He's 10 years older than me. So he kind of paved the way for me. And I looked up bad religion and then someone said, you should check out no effects. And it kind of just happened that way. And you know, all the fat record stuff happened and that was a huge influence on me. And I still am a punk rock guy at heart, even though my career took a really different turn. Um, but I say that, but you know what? I was, t- I've talked to Courtney love about this a million times. She's like, holes, a punk rock band. We just got really big. I mean, I, I can see that because I mean, honestly, my one thing that I tell people all the time is Nirvana is a punk band. The mainstream sure. came to Nirvana. And I mean, and I, not because she was married to Kurt, but I put them in the same ilk, the same kind of like combo. No, they're the same that's how they met. They were in the same scene. Hole was, Hole was bigger. This is obviously way before me. Hole was a bigger band than Nirvana when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out. They would Nirvana would have opened for Hole. Pretty on the inside, the first Hole record, which is about as dirty punk rock as you get. L.A. sleazy punk rock came out, and, and you know no one hated her at the time. Everyone thought she was the greatest thing ever. And then she got with Kurt, and then you know things changed. She moved to Seattle. You know, whoever was the main writer on that record lived through this, you know, we'll never know because it was 25 years ago and a certain someone is no longer with us. 
Dude, I was going to bring that up. I, I was asking my wife. That's what's funny about this. I was asking my wife. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have Sean on the show. You know, he played in Hole. My sister, her favorite band in the entire world was Hole. And I always liked it, but I was like, ah, oh, you sure. know, I'm into heavier stuff. But yeah, I was, me too. Me that, too, by that, the way. That rumor was always there that, you know, well, Kurt wrote that record. And that's why the, the records after his death weren't quite the same. And I know that's it's yeah, just the, a rumor. But you know, Celebrity Skin was a bigger record with bigger hits. And then, see, no one likes to give Courtney any credit. And I, I have my own issues along the way with Courtney. I don't have them anymore. I think very highly of her and I love her very much. And look, man, when you work for an artist, that's that polarizing and, and, you know, iconic, your life changes forever. Like I got a lot of stuff in my life, not just like a gig that, you know, paid well or whatever. It was, you know, a lot of doors were open because of Courtney. So I'm forever in debt to Courtney love. And I absolutely have nothing but love for her. The flip side of that is she is very special and different and polarizing and can be a bit much sometimes. And I'd say that right to her, but you know, she, she gets a lot of crap and I would say this, like, yes, living with one of the greatest songwriters ever is probably going to rub off on you. Yeah. I'm sure they traded ideas, Yeah, but I want to, in, in, you know, Eric Erlinson from hole is not one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and uh, again, I'd say that right to him. No disrespect. We just, I just don't care for him that much. And he is a great guitar player and he wrote, I want to say 90% of the music of that record. So when people say Kurt wrote it, I feel bad for him because people are taking away from this guy who was also Kurt's best friend. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know that. So I'm sure they traded ideas and it could have gone back and forth. So did Kurt Wright live through this? No, Courtney Love and Eric Erlinson wrote live through this, but had she not been married to Kurt Cobain and had Eric not been hanging out with Kurt all the time and Patty hanging out with Kurt all the time, would, would the record be as good? Probably not. Yeah. No, you are what you hang out with. Remember your parents always say that? Like, yeah, totally. You've got, you've got the John Lennon of your generation in the next room, like probably going to take his advice. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the thing. Like, I think people boil it down to just this black or white kind of thing. And it's not like yeah. that. Of course there were things that were similar and there were things that sounded like maybe he wrote that melody because you're with him 24 seven. I'm sure it's going to come he out. Might have. Yeah. He, he might have. I mean, we've all been played in band, right? Like, there, there's bass lines on, on that whole record I played on uh, the last one we did nobody's daughter. I mean, I ripped off a bass line from a ballad on a Toto record that no one's ever heard. I also ripped off bass lines from fat Mike. Uh, you know, I, I like them both and they're both great. Ba- you know, the guy from Toto, David Hungate from Toto and fat Mike are both great bass players. These are two people that don't even exist in the same universe. Yeah. You, know, you could, these are total opposites, but they're both great in one way. So that does that make me a shitty bass player? No, it means I like a lot of different stuff and it came out on a record that sounds nothing like either of those artists. So I always tell, I always tell people there's only 12 notes, you know? Yeah. Right. So there's only so many combinations. I mean, there's, I listened to, you know, another podcast I listened to is Jamie Jostat from hate breed has a podcast yep. and he always says this thing says yours is ours is, and people write in and they're like, you know, listen to this song and then listen to this song. And the other day I heard there was a, uh, a suicidal tendencies song and then a puddle of mud song that I my oh my god it was the same fucking song. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I mean, there's only so much, and as you get older, you know, you start to to really listen to all this different stuff. Like I was Mister, you know, going back to the original question, I was Mister Punk Rock Kid, and I wore a no effect sweatshirt every day in junior high school to the point where my English teacher called my mom in Santa Barbara in our nice house, and you know, clearly there was not money problems at home. And said, is there problems at home? Your son won't change his sweatshirt. She's like, I don't know. He's into punk rock. He's going through something. He doesn't want to take showers. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to change his sweatshirt. Leave him alone. And it's just, you get into those things. And as I got older, I got into different stuff. You know, I got really into like more of the electronica stuff, but not like the stuff you would think of now. Like I got into like craft work and early Devo and yeah. I got super into the talking heads, which is full circle because now I manage as a manager, I manage Jerry Harrison from the talking heads and that's surreal to me. And, but all that, that early synth stuff, it really kind of blew my mind and it, it all adds up. And like, you put all those things in like the creative blender and out come these records that still blow our minds and it, everyone rips off from somebody. And I think, I think the best art and the best artists that create things are just a sum of their influences, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, look at a band like Talking Heads. They, I mean, if you listen to songs like Slippery People and all that, I mean, there's a reason the staple singer's version of Sl- Slippery People is better than Talking Heads because it was David Byrne and Jerry Harrison ripping off 70s soul music. Yeah. You know, like, well, you think they just came up with that, Rick? Like, two white guys from like upper middle class backgrounds who went to Harvard and RISD came up with that? No, of course not. They were listening to all this, these records that were from a whole different world than theirs, and they brought it to, you know, the quote unquote, you know, white 80s genre. And, you know, and we're sitting here, we are sitting on a podcast that's largely, you know, rooted in punk rock talking about it. Yeah. So that's what makes music so cool. Right. And I, I always like the whole idea of, you know, like the Rolling Stones back in the day, what they were listening to and what, you know, they got popular off of were the, the old blues musicians. Oh yeah. I mean, Howlin' Wolf and all that stuff that they loved and they were even just not even, you know, ripping them off, like covering their actual songs. And then they were, they blew up to be one of the biggest bands in the entire world. Sometimes I kind of feel bad for those guys that started it off, you know? Sure. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's like, look at a band like Green Day. I remember running into Billy Joe once and I don't know him that well, but we, uh, Courtney and Green Day have the same manager, Jonathan Daniel at Crush. And, um, you know, I've just known Billy in throughout the years and I know Mike a little bit. And I remember Billy saw that I had an RKL tattoo finger and he's like, Oh my God, RKL is one of my favorite bands or a huge influence on green day. And I'm sitting there going RKL and green day. This is a fucking polar. I mean, they're both, I guess, <laughs> punk rock, but I mean, one is like screaming about, you know, puking and the other one's writing American idiot. But yeah, I guess if you really break it down, it, it does come from the same place. It's like, you know, people that didn't fit in anywhere and they started bands. One just stayed together long enough to become huge and one didn't. You know? Yeah, definitely. And I think also, though, I talk to people about that all the time because I teach guitar for a living now that I'm not on the road right. anymore. And I've got these kids that, you know, they're between 12 and 16 years old and some of their favorite bands are Green Day. And I, they're like, yeah, Green Day is a punk band. Green Day is a punk band. And I'm like, they are a punk band, but the reason Green Day got to where they were, the reason that the offspring got to where they were, I mean, you can say right place, right time, you know, whatever you want to say, but Billy Joe and Dexter both can write a damn good song. Billy Joe and Dexter know how to write a hit song. Yeah. And they might've done the first one by accident. And then they all said, wow, shit, this is nice. I just made a million dollars and I never have to worry about money again, which is like, most punk rock people are broke and wondering what am I going to do? And that's part of the culture. And they said, well, this is really nice. I can have a family and people are showing up and I'm not worried about how to get my music out there. And these, you know, Dexter and Billy are still Dexter and Billy. They're still really nice guys. They're not acting, you know, they're not acting like, like Courtney love, like look at me, I'm a rock star. And that's no disrespect to Courtney, but she's a great rock star. Yeah. Those two are two punk rock dudes from Berkeley and, and OC hanging out. They just happen to have a lot of money, but, they learned the craft of writing a song. Why not bring that message of punk rock to a greater mass of people? I mean, someone was bagging on American Idiot to me recently, and I was like, that's the last great protest music we've had. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, Fat Mike and, and Billy Joe were the last two people to, to, to make, you know, rec- records or comps that really said, hey, fuck the government and what's going on. I don't hear anyone doing it right now besides maybe like Ice Cube just released an anti-Trump song. You know, there, there's there's I don't a hear few, anyone really doing it. There's a few hip hop guys that do it a little bit better than everybody else right now. I mean, yeah, I'll just bring up, you know, This is America by Childish Gambino. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that song is not completely against the government, I guess, but it is bringing up social issues and things that are happening. And I just feel like sometimes some of the some of the hip hop rap guys is kind of the new punk rock. That's how I feel about it. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And this is you know, no, no bagging on modern punk rock or whatever is out there is modern punk rock. But I wish I get mad when people that are, you know, quote unquote punk rock purists are like, Oh, green day's not a punk band. I'm like, well, I don't know, man. They're like one of the biggest bands in the world. And they said, Hey, let's make a whole album that says, fuck you, George Bush. Yeah. And let's sell 20 million copies and make it. It's a fucking Broadway musical. Every night people take their Republicans take their kids to see that musical on Broadway and they're singing along and they don't even understand that they're singing against themselves. I mean, that's probably the most punk rock thing I've ever heard. He's completely penetrated the system. You know, I live in Muncie, Indiana and Ball State University is the big college here. And they just they just had American Idiot like the the college put it on like they did the the whole play. And I mean, I just it's crazy how you can get into culture like that. And you're right. It's something that is protesting. It's something that's given the middle finger to George Bush, but 
all of these like, you know, white bread, conservative Republican Americans love it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 always made me laugh. I mean, it, the people I've met along the way that have been, you know, not the same politically as myself and kind of that punk rock mentality that I definitely still have. And they're like, yeah, my favorite band's Bad Religion. I'm like, your favorite band's Bad Religion, and you've got a fuck Obama sticker on your car. I'm like, you just don't get it, do you? You're, yeah. You are dumb. You are as dumb as everyone says. So this this podcast is all about tangents. So, I mean, I know we got away from the first thing, but since we're talking sure. about this, what are your thoughts on the Mike Ness situation that just happened recently? You mean when he beat the shit out of that guy in the audience? The MAGA hat wearing guy, yeah. <laughs> you know what, man? I'm not an advocate of violence, and... I think that's kind of like that bro OC mentality of, I don't like you, I'll kick your ass. But you know what? I don't know. My, he's Mike Ness. He's not really a guy uh, that's someone you want to mess with. And yeah. he, you know, he says that, and it's not an act. Like he's, That's how he really is. And I don't know. The guy was you know, talking shit, and Mike decided to jump in the crowd and do something about it. I give him credit for it. I mean, I think that's I've had some people on the show from, you know, punk bands that got fairly large. And I was talking to Randy from Pennywise when right. back in, I think, 2004, 2005, when they had their straight ahead record and they started playing more like, you know, radio festivals and they were opening for different like bigger radio bands. And I always wondered, like, you know, Mike Ness has been around for so long. If you're going to go to a social distortion show, I feel like the audience should know what they're about. Right. And so I almost, I don't want a guy to get hit. I don't, I don't advocate for violence either, but I no. just feel like that guy's a dumbass if he thought that Mike Ness was going to be totally cool with what he was doing. Yeah. Mike's been talking about knocking people out and doing drugs and going to prison for 40 years. Like, unless he's a complete sham and made the whole thing up, which I know he's not because, you know, Michael Beinhorn, who did all the whole records also did Social D's biggest record. And he's always like, Mike's the real deal, man. I mean, you know, obviously he, he dresses the way he does and it's an image, but he's a hardworking kind of blue collar, like stick to your guns guy. And, you know, I, that's what I know of Mike. And he's a really nice guy. He's a smart guy and he's a great songwriter. But I mean, what the fuck did that guy expect? Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, when you when you're in like a punk band and you have this set of ideals and everything, and then all of a sudden you start to get more popular and the crowds change. But I mean, social distortions, like a classic band, like who doesn't know what they're about? I mean, I, that's, exactly. it freaks me out a little bit that that guy had no idea. Like, oh, this is totally cool to do at a social D show. Yeah, he was looking for trouble. And that's what those kind of folks do. Those pro Trump, like, you know, they want people to react and come to their level. And I, I was just having this discussion yesterday. It's like, shit, maybe it's time to go down to their level and like win at that level first, because taking the high road doesn't seem to be working right now. Yeah. And I'm not saying we should go out and start clocking people in the head. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying maybe, like that, maybe fight a little bit dirtier though. Yeah. yeah, sure. Like we need some, some folks that are going to come out and, and be able to, to let the people on that low, disgusting level know your bullshit doesn't work here. And you know, Mike Ness is may, might be that guy apparently is that guy, you yeah. know, <laughs> Yeah, I, I enjoyed the video as a longtime Social D fan. It made me feel like a kid again. I go, there's Mike Ness jumping in the crowd, knocking out a Trump supporter. I didn't I don't know anyone that was like, oh, what an asshole. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know? like you said, and like I said, you know, violence is not the answer, but sometimes no. violence is the only thing that might work. I mean, I don't think they could have had a discussion in the middle of the concert. No. So that guy was looking for trouble. And sometimes when someone's looking for trouble, you need to show you help them out the door, you know? <laughs> Well, I love these tangents, man, but I want to get back to you because you are my guest and I'm excited to talk to you. So uh, you got into music because of the offspring, the punk rock kind of thing. What was, yeah. your, what was your first instrument? I know that you played bass professionally, but what was, was that the first thing you got? Yeah. I mean, like I had some other shit laying around. Like I got a trumpet and like a drum set laying around the house. I wasn't very good at anything. And I, I was going to be a guitar player. My older brother was going to be a bass player. And I think it was like, my mom bought him a guitar instead of a bass. So I was like, well, I'll buy a bass. And I started taking bass lessons. And actually my bass teacher was Mike Shiflett, whose brother is Scott Shiflett from face to face. And his other brother is Chris Shiflett from <laughs> Foo Fighters. No, he's for name. And That's me awesome. first. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up around the Shiflets uh, in Santa Barbara, which is funny because Chris ended up in the Foo Fighters and I ended up in hole, which I'd say Chris got the better gig, <laughs> but you know, our two bands were notoriously not friendly. Uh, although Dave Grohl dated, 
Melissa Oftemauer, who whose place I took. And so there's all this connection between the two bands. But so I got a, I got taught bass by Mike Shiflett, who's a lovely guy in Santa Barbara. He's still here, teaches guitar, Jensen music. Thank God he's passing it along. And I just started playing in bands and I just started like kind of tagging along. I was always the youngest by far. And I, I went to see uh, Nerf Herder play. It was their first show. And I went and I bought their tape and I got to meet those guys. And I met Marco from Sugar Cult. I met Joey Cape from Lagwagon. And the guys in the Mad Caddies were, you know, my neighbors down the street growing up. And, you know, Derek Plord's parents lived around the corner from me from Lagwagon. And the RKL guys lived here. And I just kind of started tagging along. And my parents were very uh, lenient, to say the least. And so I just started hanging out. Lynn Strait from Snot. And all of them kind of took it were cool to me. They'd give me a ride or give me some beers or let me in the show. And I just started to kind of to pick everything up like a sponge. I worked in the record store and I just kind of taught myself the history of all this stuff and then finally had my own band and it kind of just took off from there. I love the fact that you got into punk rock, you started playing bass and then not only is that awesome, and that's a great story in and of itself, but then you were basically at the heart of this scene. Like oh, yeah. everyone you just said that was close to you, like even you know Derek's parents living down the street or like, you know, lag wagon, like all of that stuff. It's almost like it was meant to be in, in a sense because yeah. you got interested and then you had all these mentors that were right there at your fingertips. It was really cool. I mean, Marco was running Joey Cape's label at the time and, you know, they put out Nerf Herder and some other stuff. And I used to, you know, ride my skateboard down to his house. He was running out of his mom's basement, essentially. And he lived three streets down down the road from me in Santa Barbara. And I would ride my skateboard over. And this is back when you had this stuff, you know, mailers with CDs and stickers and send them to programmers and record stores and, you know, do it that right way. And yeah, I was so grateful that him and Joey would let me you know, stuff envelopes. I mean, if those guys call me now and ask me to stuff an envelope, I, I, I tell them to go fuck themselves. But. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I'd totally do it. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, they can come stuff my envelopes. Okay, cool. Um, but no, I love both those guys. So like all those guys that came right before me, I'm, I, I don't know if I've told them enough and you know, I'm not that close with them as my, I mean, I'm still friends with all of them, but not as close as I was. And I'm so grateful that I had those mentors. Look, I picked up some bad behavior from some of them along the way too, but nothing that couldn't be worked out, you know? That's cool. So you, when was like your first band? I know, you know, the first kind of like professional quote unquote band was rock kills kid. Correct. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, were was, there like high school bands before that. Oh yeah. I was in a punk band in high school called Slimer. It was like a skate punk band. And we put out a record on cargo, which was blank 182's original label. Yeah. Um, Mark from blank was a huge advocate of the band and we would open up for them when they came and our drummer still real close friends with him and his family. And our singer Dave went on to be like a, I want to say like a hip hop kind of reggae producer named Yeti beats. He's done some really big stuff. And two of the guys went on to be uh, educators and are doing some really great work. And I, I just, I, I'm the one who stuck with like rock and punk rock. And, uh, I had a band right after high school called bright life. That was very like more towards like emo, like, and I'm not talking like fallout boy emo. I'm talking like, you know, Texas is a reason type stuff, like a little first, pop first wave type stuff. Yeah. The real stuff that was like, you know, when people were actually writing proper good music, like, and, like Jehu and bands like that. Yeah. We were like, it was less, I want to say muso-y than that and more straight ahead, but, okay. uh, that, those were the influences of that. We really wanted to like kind of go, we all thought we were maybe uh, uh, done with punk rock. So we did that. And that band had Tim Lopez in it, who went on to be in the plain white tees, um, which is obviously very different than where I ended up. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. And then uh, bright life had a deal with capital and, you know, of course we got dropped, you know, before we did anything. And that was a good lesson for me, but the, the guy who signed us was Lauren Israel. And that's probably a name you've heard. And yeah, Lauren is a guy I, I had a big falling out with after that band, but I love the I love the shit out of that guy. And I always say he's kind of like this unsung hero of a generation because he found less than Jake, Oza Motley, Jimmy World, Plain White Tee, Sugar Cult, Neon Trees. I mean, Lauren is, I would say, one of the best A&R guys of the last 25 years. I'd also say he's one of the worst managers of the last 25 years and ended up having big fallouts with a lot of folks and, and people. And it's really sad because he's a talented guy, but... That guy, you know, I, I owe a lot of my career to Lauren Israel 
and I never thought that would come out of my mouth, but it's, it's the truth. And he signed our band and he's the one who put, when, when bright life broke up, he put Tim Lopez in the plain white tees and he put me in this band he had called rock kills kid side that were signed to fearless. So obviously a very punk rock label. And he said, I don't know what to do with these guys. You know, you're good at being a leader of a band, you know, come over and, you know, let's get you working with the singer. And that band, you know, Rock Hills Kid went on to get signed to Warner Brothers. And we had a top 10 radio hit with a song called Paralyzed. And our I, singer. I remember seeing the name all the time because yeah, I, from, I was big. Well, for a while, I mean, even before you guys got really big, I was playing bass in a band called Brazil, which was on Fearless oh, Records. Yeah. So we, every time we'd go to like the Fearless offices or we'd be on tour or whatever, I just, I always saw the name. It kind of followed me around. <laughs> yeah. Bob, Bob Becker is one of my favorite people in the entire world. And I know I, I've, you know, guys like him and Lauren and Marco and these mentors that I'm so grateful to Bob. I have never met a cooler person in the music business that I feel so much gratitude towards. I mean, he took such, he paid our rent and we were a bunch of fuck ups. There's a lot of drug use and alcohol problems. And he just, he's like, but you guys have the songs. And he spent all this money getting Mark Trombino to make a record. And, you know, it went to Warner brothers and he got paid and Harry Watts, Russell signed rock Hills kid. And he had signed Radiohead and muse. And we were so like, we in our heads, we're going to be the next huge band. And, um, our singer who I love, Jeff, he just, Jeff didn't want to be the singer of a band. He wanted to just write songs and kind of hang out. And I respect that, but it wasn't in line with what I wanted. So, um, after Rock Hills Kid, which was such a cool experience to have, like to have your own band, have a radio hit and just kind of do all that was, it was so fun. And but you, you guys we, did some TV stuff too. Like I know you did some oh, stuff yeah. with, with Hole, but I know like, I remember seeing Rock Hills Kid on Carson Daly and like a couple other things, right? Yeah, you know, we did Carson Daly, we did Letterman, we did like Craig Ferguson, like all that stuff. We did every big radio festival. It was really a dream come true. I was like, wow, my my career is really happening. And then, you know, we go in to make a second record and uh, our singer just, he didn't really show up. You know, he, 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 he dropped the ball big time and, um, you know, he has to live with that. And uh, I, our producer was for the second record was Michael Beinhorn. And I mean, he took me aside one day and he's like, Hey, are you looking for another gig? Cause this is about to end. You know that, right? And he was the one who kind of gave me the dose of reality that my band was about to get, to get ousted from the label probably before a second record was put out. And, um, he said, I got someone you should meet. And that someone was Courtney Love. Wow. Yeah. And that was about what year, what year was that? Cause I know you guys broke up in 2000. When, when, when was it? 2007. Is oh, 2007. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was still in Rock Hills Kid. We still were doing stuff and people were still holding on hope. I remember Bob had offered for us to come back to Fearless. Um, there were some drug issues and I think everyone was waiting for those to get worked out. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not waiting for that. <laughs> like, I'll stay in the bank. Give me a call when stuff's going on. But uh, I was a little iffy about working for Courtney, to be totally honest, because I had heard these terrible stories. And But then I went to rehearse with her band and I saw just the whole setup was so different than anything I had seen. You know, it was like you're in a soundstage with a full staff and there's drivers and security guards. And it's like, Courtney will be here at this time. You'll wait here for her. I was like, well, this is kind of fun. You know, it's catering and sushi. And I was like, I can get used to this. And that's at the rehearsal, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Courtney's, I will say one thing I have uh, certain things about Courtney. I love and certain things. I'm very glad to be not in that band anymore, but man, she took really good care of us. I, I mean, she was so awesome to us in that way. She shared the wealth for sure. That's awesome, man. So yeah, like how, how long was the rehearsal process? Were you rehearsing for a tour? Is that what the whole thing was for? Yeah, we were doing so. Okay. They brought me in cause I was, I had been doing a lot of studio work at the time and I was working for a lot of, you know, pretty rad producers and just get, I was one of those guys that could just do things really quickly in the studio. It wasn't that I was the best or anything. I just in the studio for some reason, it clicked for me and you know how it is. People want it done quickly. Yeah. So getting a lot of studio work and um, they were working on this Courtney love record that had been through Linda Perry had produced it and they scrapped that. And then um, after that, they brought in Michael to make a rock record version of it, you know, just kind of stalling. And Michael's like, I want to bring this guy, Sean in to play bass. And Courtney was like, sounds good. Bring him in. As long as I don't hate him, he's hired. And so it started out as a Courtney Love solo record. And 
about a year into that process, she hired Jonathan Daniel from Crush to manage her and kind of bring her back. And the first thing he did was like, this is no longer Courtney. We're calling it whole. I don't care what those <laughs> other band members say. You know, he was just like, Courtney is whole. Let's do it. And it became a whole record. But it was a long process. We were rehearsing for about a year and writing, and then we recorded for a couple of years. So there weren't like, <clears throat> you guys didn't work with like songwriters. You guys just all kind of collaborated to write the songs. Yeah, she, Courtney had this batch of songs. She had a few she had written with Billy Corgan, a handful with Linda Perry. And to be honest, those were the best songs that we had, you know, because Linda, Linda and Billy are two of the best songwriters ever. I mean, they're incredible. Um, and we as a band wrote a couple that were solid. Uh, our guitar player, Mikko Larkin, is a good writer. Um, you know, he's not Billy and he's not Linda, though. And so I, I kind of just went with the flow. I was the new guy, but... I kind of wish we had included more of the songs Linda wrote on the record because um, they were great, you know? So uh, you started touring with them. This is called That One Time on Tour. I'm sure you've got some, like, juicy stories. or not even juicy stories, <laughs> just, like, funny stories. Can you give us some, like, like a normal day on the road with Hole? What was it like? Um, well, everything was a little over the top. I mean, like, Hole's not playing 5,000-seat venues. It's, like, 2,000 cap. But, you know, we, we always had a decent sized staff. And so there was lots of characters out there. I mean, the most infamous thing that I was a part of in that band, besides the fact that we played at the 930 Club and it was voted Rolling Stones like 11th worst rock concert of all times because Courtney had been overserved something. And she came out there and like, I think we played two songs. She was just talking at the crowd and like doing a photo shoot with a fan on stage and she brought 15 people on stage and started turned her back to the, you know, sold out crowd and played to the 15 people. And I, at one point walked off the stage and just went to the bar and started taking shots <laughs> and she didn't even notice I was gone. So it was stuff like that. And then you know, we played this festival in Dallas. I will never forget how scared I was 30 seconds to Mars played. And then we played, and this is 30 seconds to Mars when they were still a rock band. Yeah. Not like whatever the hell Jared's doing with it now, yeah. like dressing like neon feathers and whatever he's doing and jumping around with flags. Um, and they played and as you know, kind of that more active rock crowd as we'll use old radio terms. And we played and right after us was going to be limp biscuit, like doing a, a rare one-off. Wow. And Courtney's, of course, bagging on Fred. How dare you put us on here? And she looks at me like, watch this, and gives me this smirk that I know very well. And I just, I love it because she's such a shit disturber. She looks out at the crowd and she goes, this next song is about a town that none of you will ever see. It's called Malibu. And I'm just <laughs> like, oh, you fucking <laughs> And I remember thinking, we got to get the hell out of here because we're going to get the shit kicked out of us. Like, you know, and like our security guy like took us and we went straight to the airport and people were throwing shit at us. It was, you know, again, like I said, Hole was a punk rock band, no matter what anyone says. Like to me, that's more punk rock than anything anyone else could do because the crowd was definitely a new metal kind of butt rock crowd. And they hated her before she walked on stage. So she figured, fuck trying to win them over. Let's just piss them off more. I was, I was going to tell you, I've, you know, I told you I teach guitar. I've got these kids. I, I've been, you know, I always tell people like who's coming up on the show and I've been bringing your name up to different people. And it amazes me. I have some of these students who are like millennial age and they're like, what's whole? And I'm like, it's Courtney Love. I'm like, oh, you mean the actress? Like, exactly. It, yeah. It blows me away that, that there's a generation now that knows her from being in movies and doesn't know her from sure. actually being a musician. No, and I really hope she comes back with with Eric and Patty and Melissa and does a proper. I mean, look, to, people always say, "Oh, there's the real hole," and then there's there's every whole record had a different lineup on it. If you look back, um, the biggest lineup, the most commercially successful, and I think the one that people really hold near and dear to their heart is the Patty Schemmel, Melissa Oftenmaier, Eric Erlinson, and Courtney Love, the band that toured, lived through this, and recorded and toured Celebrity Skin, the height of the band. They need to go out, play those records in their entirety, and, and remind everyone that the band is not just Courtney, and it's a great band. And I think that's, if I were them, that's be the first thing I would do. But it, it's funny you mentioned that. Like, I had a girl in Starbucks wearing a Hole shirt and, uh, Mel, on, like, on Melrose in L.A. And I was like, oh, Hole, I played in that band for like a long time. And she's like, it's a band? 
you know, she had just bought this shirt thinking it was like a cool 90s shirt. On the, I felt old. I felt old and unimportant. Man, when I, uh, I, I live in Indiana now, which is where I grew up. But for a long time, I met my wife. I was living down in Gulf Shores, Alabama, down on the beach. And like uh-huh. the second or third week I was there, I was going out to try to meet people to make, make friends. And this guy was at the bar hanging out we were talking, you know, and his friends were there and, and uh, what do you do for a living? And I was kind of, no, I was, it was in a band. I was doing this, that. And then his cell phone rings and it was boys of summer by the Ataris was his cell phone. Like oh my the ringtone. And I said, dude, that's my band. And he goes, no, that's some 41. Like, <laughs> like that song got so much bigger than the band that oh yeah that it was like people don't even know like i've seen it on the internet before like on boys of summer on youtube like it says it's fallout boy or some 41 it it always has the wrong band name on there so it was just funny right. that it's the same kind of thing you see this girl where oh that was my band like and she has no idea what band? That's the band oh everyone knows courtney though you know yeah, everyone yeah. knows shenanigans or and you know she's been doing some acting again recently and i i i we didn't talk for a little while. Just we needed a little break from one another, but we've become buddies again. And you know, uh, you know, for the for the most part, and as much as you can be buddies with someone like that. Um, and I, I saw her in a couple different acting roles, and I text her. I'm like, God, it makes me so happy to see you doing that because that is what she loves. That Courtney loves that world, and I think when when everything kind of took a shit for her in like 2001 and she was no longer getting big movie roles and the band was broken up and you know the 90s weren't the 90s anymore and i think that was a really hard time for her and to see her kind of coming back and doing more stuff like that now it's really cool i mean i i love that the larry flint movie that she was in oh that, that, that was like no one else could have done that such a such a great performance it kind of blew me away oh, on the moon oh, yeah. uh, with jim and there's a bunch of them you know that she did these really small roles and you'll see them come up and you're like, fuck, I forgot. She did this one movie called trapped with Kevin Bacon. That was really cool. She was great in it. So what was it like? Did you guys, you did like European stuff. You, were you all over the place with the band? We did it all, man. We did it all. When that, when we did the whole record, uh, the nobody's daughter record, we did a full push. We did Letterman. We did the tonight show. We did Jules Holland. We did the last Jonathan Ross show on that network. And you know, we did headlining tours. We did big festivals. We did everything you could ever want to do in a rock band. Uh, the record did not do as well as I think David Massey and the people at Island Def Jam were hoping it would do. But it was really at a time, I mean, think about it, 2010, 2011. Yeah, Napster had been out for a long time and all that shit went down with iTunes. But that was really a time where people really stopped buying records. So I think Courtney had expectations left over from 1999. So no matter what happened, she was let down. And when she's let down, she's, you know, she's an artist. Her confidence goes and a not confident Courtney Love is not the Courtney Love that you want to see. And I really felt for her. I think it was really hard for her to not have the success that she wanted. And of course, you know, people are like, well, maybe it's the band. Maybe it's the manager. It's like, no, it's just wasn't the right record at the right time. But going back and listening to the record, it's really good. And it's, I think a record she needed to make. And again, I hope she comes back with the, the original we'll call them lineup and does something new with them. Cause I think the world would really embrace it. So, uh, on some of those tours that you guys did was, were you guys all in like one bus? I mean, what was the scale of it? Cause <laughs> I know that you guys had a staff and all that stuff, but like, was she in her own private thing? Was she flying to all the shows and you guys were driving? What was that? like? It was a, it was a hodgepodge. Like she would have budget for two buses one for her and her like assistant and stylist and like, cause there's the Courtney love world and there's the whole world. Like she has her own personal manager and her own, like all like the Nirvana stuff. Like she's got a whole shitload. She's a whole entity, you know, still. And then there was the band, but when she was, and I give her a lot of credit for this. She would always say, I don't want to be disconnected from my band. These guys are my band. They're my friends. Like, I'm here to be with them and do this work that we're doing. So we'd be like, wow, how cool. But then she'd be on the fucking bus with us. And again, love her to death, but not someone you want to live with. And I've lived with her on a bus. I lived with her in LA for a while. We lived at the Chateau Marmont for a while. We lived in her house in New York for a while together. She's a tough person to live with because she's not in reality. So she was on our bus a lot, but she would get real sick of it real fast and start flying and, you know, all of a sudden, by the end of a tour, she'd be someone who showed up for the show and took off right afterwards. But, you know, she really tried. She tried to be one of us. Well, I think it's hard when you've been kind of 
detached from reality for so long because you got famous so early, it can probably be a struggle to try to just be a normal person, you know? Yeah. And what she can like, I remember we flew on like a WestJet Canadian flight, which is, you know, a budget airline. And we flew across the country and she got on the plane. She's like, there's no first class. I go, well, there's no, it's like Southwest. She goes, what's Southwest? I go, oh boy. I go, this is going to be a long fucking trip. And she goes, well, why don't you sit with me and we can talk? And I'm like, oh God, it's going to be all my fault. So she really, to her credit, wanted our band to be an equal thing. And she was just one of, you know, quote unquote, one of the guys. But at the end of the day, she's a 50 year old multimillionaire celebrity. And we're just a bunch of shitheads who got lucky. So it didn't really work that way. But there, there was separation always for the first week. And then it went into exactly what it should be. Courtney showing up, yelling at people, going on stage, playing a great show and, and, and leaving. That's awesome. So what was, uh, I, I ask this all the time. I'm an avid traveler, you know, with the band I was in different bands I was in. And then just on my own, I've been to a lot of different countries. Do you have yeah. a favorite place that you played or maybe just like a top two or three, like as far as outside of the United States? Uh, the shows we did with Courtney in London were really special because in London, Courtney love is still Courtney love. Like it's 1994. They've never given up on her and it's really kind of heartwarming. And it's a place where you get the full package with her and she really feels the love and the confidence and she loves London and she's just kind of a big swinging dick there. Yeah. And to experience that with her was really special. And I don't think I'll ever have an experience like that again. And, you know, doing two or three nights at Brixton Academy or two or three nights at Shepherd's Bush um, on the same tour to start and stop it, to start and end a tour and all, you know, getting going on Jules Holland. And like you look over and like Ozzy and Iggy Popper sitting there looking at you. And I remember Mumford and Sons was a band no one had heard of. And they were, you know, playing because, you know, Jules has the four different guests and getting those kind of experiences with her. So I'd say going to London with her was something very special and made me have a special place for London in my heart. And then uh, outside of that, uh, Japan, of course, and I'm yeah. sure you've been to Japan. Yeah, I mean, it's Japan's a, amazing. It's like, it's like being in the future. Like it's the it coolest. Is, yeah. it's, there's nothing cooler than Japan. And because of the time zones, you're literally in the future. <laughs> you're literally in the future. And the Japanese fan base embraces rock and roll and punk rock so hard. And they do it's without, it doesn't stop. It's 24 seven. They fucking love it. And it's, you know, bands, we had ginger Wildheart from the wild hearts in our band for a while with Courtney. And he's like in Japan, I'm like a God still, <laughs> like you know, and it, they really take care of their uh, rock music over there. So uh, one other question, I've been starting to ask this to different people. Um, you've met a lot of people. You've been in this industry for a long time. What is one person that you met that maybe you were scared or kind of fanboyed or kind of, you know what I mean? Like when you have that moment, when you meet one of your heroes, like I've met the guys in Metallica and I was a little bit freaked out, <laughs> you know, yeah. like who was there one person you met that was like that you got starstruck by? Uh, Elton John. Really? You met Elton John? Yeah. Cause that's like Courtney's buddy. And so we were doing the, um, the nobody's daughter record and Elton John, we were doing it at Jim Henson studios, which, you know, it, it, only big artists record there. Yeah. So it's so expensive. So we were there for like two years. And so we got to meet all these crazy people. And a lot of them were people I knew kind of already, you know, like the Motley Crue guys or like John Bon Jovi. It didn't do anything for me. And those are guys that I'm kind of friends with. But Elton John came in and he did this thing where he went around and played on everyone's record. Alice in Chains was there at the time. So that record that came out in like oh, that bla uh, black, bl black bleeds the blue or whatever. I remember. I, I believe that's the one. Yeah. He has a credit on there. He so played piano on one of the, one of the songs that was kind of one of the singles. And I was like, how the hell did they get Elton John? Well, this is how he awesome. was in the building. He was in the building and we were down there and, um, we did a song called letter to God, which is, it should have been a huge hit. Linda Perry wrote it. She did such an amazing job. I mean, the song was written for Courtney by Linda and Linda and, and Courtney go back 35 years. They lived together in San Francisco in the early eighties. They're old school friends. So she wrote it as a gift to Courtney during a tough time, which is really beautiful. And so Michael Beinhorn, our producer was like, well, John's in the building. You should probably get him to play piano on it. No. And he was just like, absolutely. What time am I here? 
blah, blah, blah. And he, so everyone goes, 11 a.m. tomorrow. Everyone be here. He's going to come in and do it in one take, and it's going to fucking Elton John. And he's super cool, and he's someone who inspired me to get sober, and, like, he's just the coolest guy in the world, right? He's fucking Elton John. That's crazy, So man. he comes in, and he's wearing, like, a shiny tracksuit, and he's got these big security guards, and he's just, like, it's like he's not even human, man. Like, I've spent a lot of time around rock stars. Courtney Love, Tommy Lee, they ain't got shit on Elton John, dude. He's a bad motherfucker. So he walked <laughs> in and he goes, all right then, boys, where's Courtney? And I'm like, well, Courtney's not here. He goes, what? He goes, you tell that fucking bitch if she doesn't get down here that I'm fucking leaving. And if this is a band song, she needs to be part of her band. He's just going off. And we're just kind of looking and everyone goes, well, we'll try to call her. And so someone gets her on the phone, I, I believe. And she's basically, like, well, fuck him. <laughs> so he walks out. And that was the last time I ever saw him. <laughs> and he didn't play on the record and he played on everyone else's album. And the song didn't become a single. And I remember sitting there like after the, you know, the record stopped having singles come out. And Courtney goes, I really wish they had released Letter to God. And I just go, I really wish Elton John had played on it. <laughs> she just kind of scowled at me like, shut the fuck up. But yeah, that was that was probably the coolest. I mean, there's been some other cool ones, but that that's that one meant a lot to me. He's cool. Well, I tell you what, man, I've had an amazing time talking to you today. Um, I, I only have like uh, one more big question. You know, I know you're you're managing artists and things right now. What, yeah. do you, what do you have in the works? What's going on in your life right now? So after I quit uh, working for Courtney, which was about 2015, um, the first thing I did was go to rehab and I got sober. And it was probably the best decision I've ever made other than getting married to my wife. And. I did that and I came out of it and you know, I, I wasn't in need to go into something new right away. I was fortunate to have some time on my hands. I was living up in Marin County and just kind of the world aligned in this thing. I always wanted to become a manager and, and Courtney had these two great managers. She had Jonathan Daniel at crush and Rick Canny, who used to be at sanctuary and now has FTA Rick manages Tommy Lee and Dave Devaro. And he was a huge inspiration for me to get sober. And I love the guy to death. And they had both told me over and over again, you're really on the wrong side of this. You know, I know you don't like being in a band anymore. I know you want to do what we do. So I started doing it and I, I got involved with a, my first client was a package tour called take me the river, which was based on a, a documentary and was all these old blues musicians. And I put together a, basically a big traveling circus of like 30 people. And I was like, well, I can do this. And then I started working with Jerry Harrison from the talking heads, uh, managing him as a producer and, you know, just, helping him with his legacy and doing a book deal and a signature guitar. And then I took on Anthony Boza. Anthony writes all the rock star biographies. Uh, he wrote Tommy Lee's biography, Derek Jeter, Slash, uh, Eminem, big, big, huge books. And he came to me and was like, I love what you've done with Jerry. Can you, you know, help me expand? So we've I'm managing him and uh, just a few other things too. And I doing some production on uh, documentaries, music docs and outside of music. I'm working on one right now about Sean Penn's organization in Haiti and that'll come out in 2020. So really doing the kind of manager producer thing full time. And I don't see that changing ever. That's awesome. Are you, are you still playing music? I mean, in, in any capacity at all? Yeah. I, it's funny. Jerry Harrison had to play a charity event that I got him uh, not roped into. He, he wanted to do it, but I got him into it. And he's doing it and he's like, well, I'm not getting paid. Well, I'm not fucking hiring a band out of my own pocket. So he looks at me, he's like, you're playing. <laughs> so I got up, but I'll play with Jerry anytime. Cause anytime I get to play original modern lover songs that he helped write and talking head songs, it's fine by me. So here and there I do that. And I did a session for Tommy Lee last year on an artist he was producing. It was really fun, but uh, I'd like to do some more playing. And I've had a few offers for things over the years, last couple of years, it just, you know, it's got to be the right thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I would love to do something. I just want to make sure it's something I love, not something I'm just doing for the money or because I feel like I'm supposed to, you know? Yeah, that's awesome, man. Hey, I want to, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. These, uh, these stories have been amazing. I really appreciate you coming <laughs> my on. My pleasure. Um, I was going to say, I always play music after, you know, I do my little outro and we're done. I play music. Uh, I've, I'm probably going to pick one that I really like, but is there a certain song on that whole record you'd like me to play? Like that really touches you or that meant something to you? The first single skinny little bitch, that song should have been bigger. And it, it, it is like pure what court it is like embodies Courtney's real rock and roll spirit. And I think it's such a great, I'm so proud of that song still. Okay, well, I will make sure that I, I'm going to pick one that I like, and then I'll, I mean, not that I don't like that, but I'm going to pick another one, and I will play Skinny Little Bitch for you. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, hopefully, maybe in the future, come back. We can talk about some more stuff, man. 
Anytime, man. Plenty of stories. Cool. Thanks well, for having I'll, I'll let you know when it's up and uh, have a great night. I'll talk to you soon, man. Cool, man. So there it was, my conversation with Sean Daly of the band's Hole and Rock Kills Kid. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I had a blast talking to Sean, and I can't wait to have him back in the future for a part two. But uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I am going to try a new segment now. I'm, I'm going to have my wife interview me for an upcoming episode where you guys ask questions and then she kind of asks your questions. You email me, tototpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram or whatever. And my wife's going to ask me the questions. So it's like, ask Chris. It's going to be a fun episode. I'm also going to do like an end of the year, like top whatever list of mine episode. I'm going to do some different things. So it's going to be a lot of fun. But but I do have a new segment. It is uh, where I'm going to read some email from you guys. I don't have any cool like bumper music like Jamie Josta or anything, but uh, I'm going to read an email. So here's an email from, from a listener. Hi, Chris. My name is Ted. I was wondering what was the most frightening experience you ever had while on tour. Love the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Ted. I think I had a hard time reading there for a second. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the scariest thing that ever happened to me was, I mean, there's a lot of scary stuff. But uh, I was on tour in northern Canada one time with a band called The Reason. They're on Warner Brothers, but uh, they used to be called Sewing with Nancy. So shout out if you guys are listening. I have to have you guys on the podcast soon. We were on tour up in northern Ontario. And we there's not a lot. If you never toured in Canada, there's not really there's not a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, like it's 10, 12 hour drives between the cities and there's not a lot of gas stations. And so like it was the middle of the night and we had to pee. So we just stopped to pee and we're peeing by the trailer and we look over on the side of the road and there's a moose there. And I mean, this moose was the biggest animal I'd ever seen up close. And it was very, very scary because I mean, people get hurt. Moose like attack, they charge you. So we stood there, you know, (laughs) Even after we were finished, just stood there as still as we could by the trailer. And uh, the moose got up and walked across the, the, the road and and we were safe. But I, I was I was super, super scared because, uh, I mean, I love wildlife, but it was a really big moose. So I hope that story is good enough for you. I'll, I'll try to think of some other ones. But uh, that was a scary moment on the road. So uh, shout out to my guys and the reason they're getting ready to do a big show up in Hamilton, Ontario for the 15th anniversary of their debut record Ravenna. So if you guys are in Hamilton, you're probably not going to get tickets because I think it's already sold out. But uh, check out The Reason. They're on Spotify. They're really, really good. And uh, they're my dudes. Okay, so um, I'm going to leave you guys now. Make sure you're following us on all the social media platforms. TOTOT Podcast. Get in touch. TOTOT Podcast at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And that's it. I'm not going to talk to you guys for a while. It's going to be a few weeks. So, um, you know, I'll keep posting stuff on on social media and letting you guys know what's going on. But uh, it's going to be a couple weeks till I get a new episode up. So I love you guys. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to leave you with the song that Sean and I were talking about. Skinny Little Bitch by the band Hole. Hope you guys enjoy it. And I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Love you guys. Thanks. Skinny Little Bitch.
Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! <laughs>